0: So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken from the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh.
1: Jesus was consistently on the side of those who were outcast by society and bore the unfair burden of disdain, discrimination, and prejudice. It is likely that he would look at modern day lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people and hold real sympathy for them and their plight. Would he not be found speaking a word of support, encouragement, and hope to them? Would he not be seeking a change in the hearts of those who treat them as outcasts? There's a spark
0: The clouds are dark, and the wind is strong. And free.
1: the same they want to bring the issue into my life. My freedom will be taken away. I have a
0: California doctor who must please between my faith and my job. And part of New Jersey Church are punished by the government
2: because we can't support same-sex marriage. I am a Massachusetts parent, helplessly watching public schools teach my son that gay marriage school.
0: 'Cause God makes no mistakes. I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. No matter gay, straight, or bi, lesbian, transgender, life, we're on the right track, baby. We were born to survive. Don't live your life in regret. Just love yourself, and you're set. You're on the right track,
1: baby. You were born this way. <laughs>
0: So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, Jesus was consistently he took one of the man's on the side of those
1: and who were outcast out by society flesh. and bore the then unfair Lord burden of disdain, discrimination, of the and man. prejudice. And he it is likely that he would look at modern day lesbian, gay, and gay bisexual, and transgender people and hold real sympathy and for them into their flesh. plight. Would he she not be found be speaking women, a word of encouragement, support, and hope for, for them?
0: Reason, Would he not be seeking to change, change the hearts
1: of those who treat them and as outcasts?
0: Jesus was consistently
1: on the side and of those who were outcast by society flesh. and bore the unfair for this burden this of disdain. We'll
2: There's a lot of voices, aren't there? And there's a lot of confusion, isn't there? And so we need wisdom to discern the voice that we need to hear. We should pray about that. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you that we can call you Father Thank you that your Son, Jesus Christ, has made it possible for us to be redeemed from the kingdom of darkness to transplant us into the kingdom of the beloved Son. You tell us in your word if we ever lack wisdom, we should ask, and you generously provide to all without finding fault. Your only condition is that we ask in faith and trust, leaning upon you, and so we do that now. God, give us wisdom. Help us to filter out the voices from below so that we might hear the voice from above. Thank you for your word. And thank you that when you speak, you do not mumble. Lord, open our eyes that we may see the wonderful things written in your word to the glory of your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning will be taken from the New Testament book of Romans, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn there. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 is where we'll be. and You'll find that on page 947 of your church Bibles. If you don't have a copy of God's Word to call your own, I would encourage you to just take that uh, copy that's in front of the pouch before you and receive it as a gift from this church family. Put your name in it, take it home. We want everyone to have a copy of God's Word. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is God's Word. Every child needs a healthy father and a healthy mother. Every child needs a healthy father and a healthy mother. To what level do you agree or disagree with that statement? When you hear that statement, every child needs a healthy father and a healthy mother. When you hear that statement, you find yourself strongly agreeing with that or maybe just agreeing with that. Do you find yourself undecided about that statement? Do you perhaps disagree with that statement? Every child needs needs a healthy father and a healthy mother. Do you strongly disagree with that statement? Interestingly enough, our responses to that statement may very well drive our beliefs about the topic of same-sex marriage. What we've come to call same-sex marriage and the debate about it is not really about or directly about homosexuality. Someone even asked me yesterday morning, so you're going to be talking about homosexuality at church? And my response was no, not directly It's not about whom to let marry. It's about what marriage is. It's about the meaning of marriage. And that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about the meaning of marriage. What is marriage? That's our focus. Now, at the outset... It is important to acknowledge what everybody in this room knows to be true in our culture. This issue is highly controversial. And we probably have attenders today who have different views about this issue. And so, you know, my hope and my desire as I teach on this this morning is to do so in a manner... Like I do every controversial topic, full of grace and full of truth, as a Christian brother who loves you and who wants to help you think critically and biblically about this very important issue. And so, to do that, what I want to do is to answer some questions this morning questions like just what is the issue? What is the issue? As we consider same-sex marriage, uh, we'll see that the issue is really about two competing views of marriage. And we'll see those views here shortly. And then I want us to spend some time thinking critically about each of these views. I want to subject these views to reason and rational thought. And then, thirdly, I want to answer the question, how can we respond as Christ followers? How can we be salt and light in our world? And along the way, what I'd like to do is to offer some talking points about this issue which might help you in your conversations with both believers and seekers. So that's where we're going this morning. Uh, Let's begin with question number one. What is the issue? Well, right now, the United States Supreme Court is about to rule on the constitutionality of two laws. The Defense of Marriage Act, which was passed in Congress in 1996. And then, California's Proposition 8. Both of these regard the meaning of marriage. Both define marriage as being between a man and a woman And define spouse as the opposite sex in such a marriage. So we're dealing with definitions here. We're not dealing directly with the issue of homosexuality. We're dealing with this issue. What is marriage? Now. There are two competing views. Regarding this question. And this issue. First there is what has been called the conjugal view. The conjugal view. The conjugal view defines marriage as the union of a man and a woman. It's a permanent union. It's an exclusive and committed union. It is a union grounded in natural law. It is therefore inherently ordered for the potential of producing children, and it is for the benefit and welfare of the children. And nations survive through each generation of children. So in the conjugal view, spouses seal and renew their union by conjugal acts that unite them, acts that constitute a comprehensive union physically, sexually, emotionally, spiritually. The conjugal view. The second view has been called the revisionist view. The revisionist view. The revisionist view defines the essence of marriage as a loving emotional bond, a bond that is distinguished by its intensity, a bond that concerns the partners who make the bond but needn't point beyond the partners. It's a bond in which fidelity is ultimately subject to one's own desires. In this view of marriage, partners seek emotional fulfillment, and in the revisionist view, they remain together as long as they find it. The revisionist view is grounded in a kind of free coming together of two people to live out their lives. The revisionist view. Uh, The revisionist view is leading the charge for same-sex marriage in our country. It is very, very persuasive, and it is a view that more and more Americans are adopting in our culture. And, And why is that? Well, when you hear discussions in favor of the revisionist view, whether it is through mainstream media or social media or even the break room over lunch... You'll hear any or all of these four reasons, progress, love, equality, and rights. (laughs) Now, make no mistake, these are very powerful and persuasive reasons, and these reasons resonate with the American way of life and our love of liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And these reasons are often communicated in a tone so stringent that any dissent is swiftly uh, labeled as judgmental or bigoted or outdated or phobic. Uh, Brendan O'Neill is an editor and columnist uh, from Sydney, Australia. Uh, He is a self identified atheistic libertarian. Listen to what he writes. I have never encountered an issue like gay marriage, an issue in which the space for dissent has shrunk so rapidly in which the consensus is not only stifling but choking. This is the only issue in which for criticizing it from a liberal, secular perspective, I've been booed during an after-dinner speech and I've even received death threats. It's the only issue on which even my friends have said, stop writing about it. It isn't worth it. How do we account for this extraordinary rise to the respectability of same-sex marriage? And he says it in a word. Conformism. Conformism. A slow but sure sacrifice of critical thinking and dissenting opinion under pressure to accept that which has been defined as a good by the elite of society. The same-sex marriage campaign provides a case study in conformism, a searing insight into how soft authoritarianism and peer pressure are applied in the modern age to sideline and eventually do away with any view considered overly judgmental, outdated, or phobic. And then he says this, and keep in mind these are his words, not mine. Opponents of gay marriage are now treated by the press in the same manner as queer rights agitators were in the past. As strange, depraved creatures whose repenting and surrender to mainstream values we await with bated breath. Public opinion does not change this fast in free societies. Either opinion is not changing as fast as it appears to be or society is not free. Now, keep in mind, Brendan O'Neill is not a Bible-believing, evangelical Midwesterner. He's an atheistic libertarian from Australia. Given the groundswell of public support for the revisionist view of marriage, I'm wondering, how would you participate in a conversation about this if you were not a revisionist? If I were to do so, I would first begin with these questions. Questions like, do you value diversity of thought? How tolerant are you to differing perspectives? Can we have a mature conversation in which we may find ourselves in disagreement? That's where I would begin. And if the answer to those questions is no then the discussion's over. But if yes, then we can proceed. So what I'd like to do is briefly unpack each of the reasons that support the revisionist view, starting with progress. Progress. Well, you know, why should we oppose progress, right? Americans are all about progress. The Model T, Microsoft, MacBook Air, Kindles, tablets, iPads, iPods, iPhones, Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Pinterest. I mean, we're all about the next big thing. Yet those who argue on the premise of progress often forget that lots of discarded ideas were once hailed as the inevitable march of progress, such as communism, or the eugenics movement in early 20th century America. Or the Volt. The people aren't really that interested in the complexities of history, you know. We just know that we don't want to be considered the nincompoops who thought that the sun revolved around the earth and that slavery was Okay. Well, let's talk about love for a moment. I mean, how could anybody be against love? How could anyone keep two people who are in love from marriage? Well, on the surface, this is very, very convincing. Yet tucked away in the fine print is the cultural assumption that romantic sexual intercourse is the highest perhaps only fulfilling expression of love. The cultural assumption is that love is always self-affirming and never self-denying. The cultural assumption is that my self-expressiveness and my self-actualization, that's what love is about. The cultural assumption is that love is about my personal and individual happiness. That's what matters most. And furthermore, it assumes that my private and personal feelings and affections about love for another person ought to warrant the state's authorization for marriage. And friends, if that's the case, then billions of people in the history of the world who thought they were married were not. I and mean, what about those arranged marriages? Love may emerge later, but only as a result of marriage, not the reason for it. Vows aren't meant to sustain love. Vows are meant to sustain the marital union when the affections of love wane. Or as Pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer once put, it is not your love that sustains the marriage. But from now on, the marriage that sustains your love. Furthermore, when you go to the county courthouse and you fill out a marriage license, you're going to be asked to answer a series of questions like where were you born and when were you born and where do you live now and is this your first marriage or what's your mother's maiden name? Questions of that sort. But I guarantee you there is one question that is not on the application and it never will be. And here's the question. Do you love him? Do you love her? That's never going to be on the application. And do you know why? Because your private affections are of no concern to the state. Well, what about equality? The issue before the Supreme Court is whether two laws, one voted in by the people of California and the other approved by our democratically elected officials, should be struck down for violating the 14th Amendment concerning equal protection. Equal protection under the law means that the law is applied the same to everyone. Equal protection under the law is violated only when the same thing is denied to diverse groups only because of their group definition. That's equal protection. Now what I'm about to say is profoundly unsatisfying to those who favor same-sex marriage. But nonetheless, it's factually correct. And here it is. There is no law against homosexual persons contracting heterosexual marriage. Heterosexual marriage has not been denied to homosexual persons. Now, I understand how profoundly unsatisfying that answer is. It leads to the question, well, pastor, what homosexual wants to marry a heterosexual? And the proper response is this. That's not the point. It's not. The point is that it doesn't violate equal protection. There is no legal inequality, just an inequality of desire and one's personal and private desires do not justify the force of law. And while it's true that the Defense of Marriage Act withholds federal marriage benefits from same-sex couples, it does so to every other non-marital relationship as well, be they heterosexual siblings college roommates, fraternity brothers, sorority sisters, or the like. If same-sex couples face unequal protection in this area, so does every other pair of unmarried citizens who have deep, loving commitments to each other. And this gets us to the heart of the revisionist view. The revisionist view seeks to establish a new kind of contract a contract that changes the law so that marriage becomes something entirely different, so that it becomes genderless. But if the state sanctions same-sex marriage based on the revisionist definition, well, then what's to keep the state from not recognizing as marriage your group of four friends or your close cousins or an office suite just because they want that commitment and they want that to be called marriage see see if that's the case if marriage means everything then how can it mean anything well then there's the issue of rights now it's intentional that the advocates of the revisionist view link same-sex marriage to civil rights history I mean, it's been a rhetorical masterstroke. However, Vody Bakum, who is the pastor of Grace Family Baptist Church in Houston, Texas, says this He says, gay is not the new black. And we should not formally equate sexual orientation to ethnicity. We should not view sex as an essential component of personal identity. To equate I am homosexual with I am black or I am male is to assume that homosexual desires are rooted genetically in the same way that the color of your eyes are rooted genetically. And that's just simply not the case. And it also assumes that our personal desires are good so long as they don't harm others. And furthermore, it assumes that fulfilling one's personal desires are part of what it means to be fully human. You know, surveys often pose the question, should it be legal or illegal for gay and lesbian couples to marry? Well, when you put it that way, it sounds like a criminal offense. Here's the fact. There is no law in our land right now which prohibits homosexuals, or any two adults from making promises to each other, holding a ceremony, or entering into a covenant with each other. In other words, no personal liberty is being currently denied. Same-sex couples can share home ownership, raise children, commingle property, establish a will, and spend their lives together. The question is whether the state should give that contract the name of marriage with all of its rights and privileges thereto. And, And see, what's often missed in this discussion is the difference between laws which criminalize an activity versus laws which incentivize an activity and our marriage laws belong to the latter category our marriage laws are written to promote or to to give incentive to the conjugal view of marriage which leads to this question (laughs) why would the state write laws exclusively promoting marriage between a man and a woman why would the state write laws promoting the conjugal view and that leads us to why the conjugal view is wiser. And I can answer it in one word. Children. Children. Children are the future of every society. In every culture, men and women, they're attracted to each other, and they wish to commit to each other in a stable relationship, and, and then perform sexual acts, which might result in children. Children. Every culture encourages men and women, ideally before performing such sexual acts, to form a community that will be a suitable environment for the flourishing of love and children. And do you know what they call that community? Marriage. The community of marriage creates its own small society consisting of a mother and father and children. And this small social unit contributes to the larger society by creating a functional future, the next generation. And all of us benefit from having a next generation that can sustain. The society and keep it going. Every society needs a next generation of, of farmers and teachers and soldiers and voters and entrepreneurs and intellectuals and physicians and accountants and preachers and baseball players and professional golfers to provide essential goods and services. So the government has a vested interest in the institution of marriage because the marriage between a man and woman has the potential to produce children which will keep society going. Children justify the state's legal recognition of conjugal marriage. Uh, Maggie Gallagher is an author and she captures this insight with this slogan. Sex makes babies... Society needs babies, and children need mothers and fathers. And this is what distinguishes opposite-sex marriage from same-sex marriage. Because no child can be born from a same-sex union. A child that's been born into a same-sex union has had another parent who's been quietly escorted into the lab or the back door to make the conception possible, and that person is quickly escorted right out the back door before he can claim any parental rights or the child can claim any relational rights. So so redefining marriage to include same-sex couples would eliminate in law... And weaken in culture this basic, irreducible, foundational principle of a healthy mother and a healthy father for every child, which is the precise purpose for which marriage was created. Now, same sex marriage advocates deny this, arguing that sex and children are not at the heart of marriage. They define marriage as simply a commitment between two people in an intimate, caring relationship. And this definition, according to author David Blankenhorn, is wildly inadequate. What children need most are healthy mothers and healthy fathers. Not caregivers, not parent-like adults, not even quote-unquote parents. What a child wants and needs more than anything else are the mother and the father who together make the child and love the child and who love each other. And that's what makes it for the public good of society. And the public good of society is why it concerns the state. The revisionist view has yet to show how it advances the public interests of society without question and without debate. The revisionist view advances the private interests of society, but private interests do not justify the force of law. Private interests do not justify the force of law. Now then, aside from our Scripture reading this morning in Romans 12, 1 and 2, I've not quoted one verse from the Bible, have I? And that's been intentional. Because when you have your conversations, you're likely to have conversations with people who don't believe the Bible. So I have not argued from the Bible. What I've done is I've argued from natural law from, and from reason and from philosophy, okay? That said, as Christians, oh, we've been given a vision of marriage from the pages of God's Word which sees children as a blessing from God. And... And in the Christian vision of marriage, we see this relationship between a man and a woman as an opportunity to display God's sacrificial, selfless love to our world. Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. Yes, even the good works in a healthy Christ-centered marriage, and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus' vision of marriage is one man and one woman joined for life. Jesus affirms, Genesis chapter 2, 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Jesus affirmed that God gets to define marriage... Not people. Marriage was created from above, not from below. And in Jesus' mind, marriage consists of a husband who takes the role of the servant leader in his family, a husband who sacrifices for his wife, who builds up his wife's faith, who cherishes and treasures his wife, and who embraces self-sacrifice for the good of his wife, and then who lovingly leads their children into the love of the Lord. In Jesus' mind, marriage consists of a wife who respects and supports and encourages and cooperates with the servant leadership of her self-sacrificing husband. And the two are united spiritually and intellectually and emotionally and sexually. And between the two, there's this beautiful giving and receiving of love. And this love is generative in sexual union. Children are created in the image of our creator, God. So then marriage projects this mysterious portrait of Christ's love for the church. Husbands role play Jesus' life and ministry and teaching and work and death and service. And wives role play the responsive, cooperative, accommodating spirit of the church and together husband and wife, live out this parable of love between Christ and the church as they live under the sovereignty of their resurrected king and the world sees their supernatural, otherworldly love and they get curious and they ask, who is this God you worship? And I'm telling you, friends, Christianity spread and flourished because of this vision and it will still spread and flourish if we will practice it today well this leads to our, the question how might we respond and i'm thinking of the old testament book of first chronicles chapter 12 Verse 32, 1 Chronicles twelve thirty-two, tells about one of the tribes of Israel, the tribe of Issachar. And in the tribe of Issachar there were leaders, 200 chiefs. And this is what 1 Chronicles 12, 32 says about these chiefs. They had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. And that's what we need. We need to understand the times so that we can know what to do. So with that in mind, let me offer that as we are continuing this conversation with both believers and seekers, it means learning to ask right questions. Questions such as, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? Ask the question. What do you mean by that? And then listen. And then a follow-up question. How did you come to that conclusion? How did you come to that conclusion? And then listen. And then after those two questions, I would propose a third question. And it's this. Ask your friend, are you open to another view? Are you open to another view? And then proceed with grace and truth. The chiefs of Issachar who understood the times to know what Israel ought to do. You know what? Only a fool would try to predict what the Supreme Court's going to do. So, you know, whatever comes from our government, could I have us remember the following? First, would you please remember that, you know, our church family is all about supernatural change. (laughs) I mean, our, our entire faith is grounded in the God who takes spiritually dead people and infuses them with life. So, you know, whenever we evangelize, we're evangelizing the cemetery. I mean, there's never been a time or a culture when it was natural to repent and turn to God. And so this ministry of helping broken people find Jesus, it will always be a supernatural ministry, always. And so from that standpoint, this particular issue has made our job 0% harder. And then, if we're to understand the times, we need to understand that resistance, resistance is the norm. And and here's how it looks. Uh, Resistance to us generally doesn't look like this. Our, our resistors or even persecutors, they, they don't say, well, you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, I'm going to persecute you now. That's not how it works. Instead, what happens is Christians hold a belief or a practice which opposes what the world wants or threatens the world. And that's when the opposition begins. And you know what? This opposition this resistance may very well be good for us. Really. Did not James in the letter to James, does he not say, brothers, consider it joy when you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance and perseverance must finish its work in you so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. How can that be bad? If we're to understand the times to know what to do, that would also mean making use of our democratic stewardship. In our democratic context, part of submitting to the state means sharing in its authority. So to neglect this democratic process, so long as it's in our hands, is to neglect the stewardship. So for the sake of love and justice, we should make use of this democratic stewardship we have in this wonderful country and then to understand the times we need to rest in the certainty of Christ's victory there is absolutely no need to panic as if Satan has finally gained the upper hand in his opposition to God through the revisionist lobby people around the world now and throughout history have suffered far more than Christians in America presently do and Satan doesn't have the upper hand there does he Each nation has its own way of rebelling against God, but none will succeed more than the crucifixion succeeded in defeating Jesus. Yes, he died. But what happened three days later? He got up, our king. Might I tell you, having said all of this, that the greatest threat to marriage right now is not same-sex marriage. <laughs> the greatest threat right now is how we as Americans, and yes, some American Christians, have simply lost any notion of covenant keeping in our country. We, we have redefined life's highest goal as self-expression and self-fulfillment. And right now, In the United States, we have reduced every single interaction to an economic exchange. And by economic exchange, I mean this. I mean if the cost is low enough and the benefits are high enough, I'm in. But if the cost gets too high and the benefits are too low, I'm out. Right? You know, I love Starbucks. But if they keep raising the price of a cup of coffee or if I don't like the barista, I'm going someplace else. And this is the way many Americans relate to marriage. We've reduced marriage to an economic exchange. So long as the cost remains low enough and the benefits remain high enough, we're in. But if the cost goes up and the benefits go down, we in America say, I'm out of here. And it only takes one spouse to say that. Covenant keeping is not an economic exchange. Rather, it is the way that God expresses himself in relationship to all of creation. And covenant keeping is how Christ in you, the hope of glory, must play out in all of our relationships and especially in our marriages. Church family, you are amazing listeners. You know that. When others come to this pulpit and they preach, one of the most often reported comments to me about you is this church is full of amazing listeners. And you've done it again. And I can't tell you what a privilege it is for me to get to be your pastor. This is a very, very controversial issue. And it's imperative that we stay full of grace and full of truth. And we express the heart of God in a winsome way and I have full confidence in God's willingness to do that through us I want us to enter a prayer time now and I'd like to ask you to bow your heads close your eyes as we consider this uh, prayer time I have some questions that I want to just walk us through What has resonated with you about uh, this message? What did did you learn today uh, that either strengthened your faith or formed your thinking in a way that um, hadn't been done before? What is it that maybe even made you change your mind? And then what is it that you still struggle with about this message? Huh? What, what, um, what's going on inside your spirit that's just kind of making you push back? It's okay. What is it? And then, you know, might we pray that there would be an opportunity perhaps even this week, to engage in a mature conversation, not not an immature conversation, not a reckless or careless conversation, but a mature conversation about this with someone. Might we pray about that opportunity? In everything, set them an example by doing what is right. In your teaching, show integrity and seriousness and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Titus chapter 2, verses 7 and 8.